Hello and welcome to my first podcast episode. Shout out to Natalie and Will, my probably two listeners, unless I get nervous and don't even tell you guys that I posted this, which is actually very possible. I think I probably will do that. But anyway, I hope that you like this case. The my, my main goal on this podcast is to talk about cases that are committed by juvenile offenders. And even though by law, once you're 18, you're an adult, there is a lot of push for juveniles in criminal justice to be at least 21 to kind of raise that age but um i mean i think there's a case to be argued that you could raise it even higher but for the purposes of this podcast i'll be covering cases of crimes committed by people 21 or younger and i hope that it just makes you think about you know even though these are people who are committing very adult crimes very heinous things if it is ethical and right to try them and charge them as adults. Say that because it was someone under, you know, 21 who did it, that they're not as responsible as an adult would be. No one wants to think that because you see something horrible and you want to punish it for what it is. You want to punish it for the action. But I think it's really important that you do have to think about the person who did it and any deficits there might be there. And when it comes to juvenile offenders, there are a lot of deficits. There are different things that they value more just based on a developmental level. There are brain differences, brain chemistry differences. There are a lot of things that you have to take into account when you're looking at their actions. And this is something that I want to think about in all of these cases that we discuss. And maybe these juveniles should be behind bars for the rest of their lives. Maybe there aren't any good enough reasons for them to have done what they did. But I think that you just always have to ask because when you have someone who has, you know, 60 years of life ahead of them, you have to be very sure that you have a criminal, a lifespan, lifestyle criminal on your hands before you lock them up for the rest of their lives. But that is enough ranting from me about the subject, so I hope that you think of that a little bit while you listen to this case as the offender is 21 years old, and make the decision that you're comfortable with if you think that his age played a large role in this crime, and also thinking about if he would be someone who would be violent and dangerous his entire life. So, let's get into it. There's a random blank space here with no sound, and I don't really know how to fill it, so um, let me do my own music. So today I want to talk about the case of Bianca Devins. So we're just going to start off explaining the background of a couple of the key people who are involved in this case. So first up, obviously, we have Bianca Devins. Bianca was a 17-year-old girl from Utica, New York. She had just graduated from high school, and that following fall, she was going to be attending community college to take some psychology courses. She had reportedly suffered from multiple mental illnesses, likely what influenced her to be interested in psychology in the first place, but some of the mental illnesses mentioned were anxiety, depression, PTSD, and some of her friends mentioned that she had suicidal ideation. A lot of the time, when you have someone who's suffering from mental illness, they'll turn online as a way to grow their connections with other people because they're struggling to do that in real life. So this was something that you saw Bianca do. She would go online to forums like 4chan and gaming sites like Discord, where she would make connections with people and ended up developing a small following. She portrayed herself and had the personality of an e-girl online, so that's basically someone who 
you know, wears black, has a lot of makeup, has um, some edgy clothes, and is online a lot, takes a lot of pictures, posts them, and a lot of the times gets some followers. So she had about 2,000 followers, and then after the crime occurred, she actually would have over 160,000 followers. The online nature of this crime is a theme that goes throughout the case and is really interesting to see the way that social media played its role throughout all of this. And also online, she did have some struggles with the opposite sex, so men would typically orbit her. Orbiting is a term that I didn't know before researching this, but apparently it's a pretty common term in these chat forums. Orbiting means men who would lurk on a woman's social media accounts in the hopes of sleeping with her. So a lot of men would do this to Bianca, and she would often get harassed and bullied by some of these men as she wouldn't be interested in them, and then they would you know, hide behind their screen and be really upset about it. And then friends of Bianca online uh, often referred to her as being kind and trying to help others even when she was feeling down herself. So she did have multiple close friends, male and female, but also that big following of men who would more so harass and stalk her online. Now we're going to talk about Brandon Clark really quick. There's not too, too much known about his background, so I'll give you what I could find online. Brandon was 21 years old when he met Bianca online. Um, In his childhood, it was reported that he grew up in a toxic household. He often witnessed his father abusing his mother. At one point, his father did hold his mother at the end of a knife in front of him for multiple hours, and that situation ended up being the situation that put Brandon into foster care so he'd get out of that bad situation. So, He as well suffered from multiple mental illnesses and again was online. That was how him and Bianca connected and became friends. They met on Instagram in April of 2019 and he attended her graduation party where he met her family and her friends. Brandon and Bianca grew a good friendship over the course of a few months, both online and with in-person visits. Brandon made it clear that he wanted more than a friendship with Bianca, but Bianca also made it very clear that she just wanted to keep it platonic with him. This actually is the beginning of where it starts to get very messy in terms of their friendship, and it starts to take a dark turn. So, when looking at Clark's internet history, it suggests that Brandon was obsessed with Bianca. When they were friends, he would always be looking her up online, checking out what she was doing, saving screenshots of their texts, saving pictures of her, talking about her in chat rooms. He would refer to her as his girlfriend, himself as her boyfriend, when that wasn't the case. And one of Bianca's friends also claimed that at one instance when Brandon and Bianca were hanging out, that Brandon sexually assaulted Bianca while high on drugs that he would often supply in order to get Bianca to spend time with him. So basically offering her drugs just to have the chance to see her. Now, when he did meet Bianca's family, Bianca's mother still reports that when she met him, she described him as charming and would have had no idea the person that he was. So now I want to get into discussing the events of the crime. There is still so much speculation about all of the details leading up to it, what actually happened during the crime, so I'm going to give the best overview that I have of what seems to have the most evidence associated with it. What's interesting is how many questions there still are for this crime, even though a lot of it was documented online, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. So on July 13th, about three months after Brandon and Bianca met, they had made plans to attend a concert together in Queens, New York. 
They reportedly met up with a third guy after they drove down there, and I believe his name was Adam. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll call him Adam. So Adam, Bianca, and Brandon all hung out in the car and smoked weed before heading into the concert venue. And this is where the chronology already starts to get a little bit messy, a little bit hard to figure out. But what it is reported is that at the concert, Bianca held hands with and potentially kissed Adam, which infuriated Brandon because, as we know, he had a vested romantic interest in Bianca, and seeing her with another guy set something off in him that made him become very angry. He, however, did not bring this up until they were back together in the car after the concert, ready to drive back to Bianca's town of Utica. The reported events of the crime make it sound as though Brandon brought up the fact that Bianca kissed another man twice while in the car. So the first time, Bianca was in the passenger seat, and she was just driving home tired after the night, and Brandon brought it up. It is reported that she was angry that he brought it up and defended herself and basically said, I don't owe you anything because we're not dating, so let it go. And then she went to the back seat of the car to fall asleep because it was very late. It was a long drive from Queens back upstate to Utica. So Bianca was asleep in the back seat of the car when Clark pulled over the car, set up his camera on the dashboard, and went back to the back seat and sat next to her. He then confronted her again very angrily, to which she still was defending herself. Bianca more or less explained once again that she wasn't in a romantic relationship with him, and she definitely wasn't in an exclusive monogamous relationship with him, telling him that he had to let it go. This is all on film, and the fact that she was still defending herself showed the investigators who saw this film that she didn't seem to think that she was in any danger as they were having this confrontation, because they were friends, so her first thought definitely wasn't that he was going to hurt her. Unfortunately, that is what happened. Brandon, in his fit of rage, attacked Bianca in the backseat of the car. He ended up cutting her throat, which led her to lose a lot of blood and eventually her life. After Bianca was laying unconscious in the car, he got out of the car and made a bonfire. Where their car was pulled off was slightly into the woods, so it wasn't really noticeable by cars passing by. It was also the very early hours of the morning, like 4 or 5 a.m. So he went back into the woods and made a bonfire. He then laid out a tarp that he just happened to have in the back seat or in the trunk of his car, and then he laid Bianca on top of that tarp. He called family members to try and get a hold of them to tell them what he had done. He only got in contact with his aunt and uncle, and they immediately called the police on him. He also called the police himself, during which he incriminated himself on the phone call. So the police were notified and began to head out to look for him. In this time, he was taking selfies with her body, posting things online. And unfortunately, these did spread very quickly because of her online following. It is reported that as the police pulled up to the scene of the crime, Brandon stabbed himself in the neck in an attempt to kill himself and then laid down on the tarp with Bianca's body and continued to take selfies as he bled out. Brandon's suicide attempt ended up not being successful as it was a relatively superficial wound to his neck. This brings up a lot of questions in the trial about if he really was planning on committing suicide, how premeditated this murder was, and exactly what happened while they were alone in the woods. As horrific as this crime is already, it becomes even more gruesome when we discuss Brandon's actions on social media throughout the killing. 
Like I had mentioned, Brandon was taking selfies with Bianca's body. Many of these selfies didn't make it online for the public to see, but unfortunately, many other things did. One of the key images involved in this case is one that Brandon posted on his Instagram story as well as on Discord, which was one of the sites that Bianca frequented. The image showed Bianca laying in the car with her head nearly off from the wound that he gave to her neck. This was left up online for hours. Instagram said that they were waiting for police to authenticate it before they deleted the content, and this was a huge source of criticism for Instagram. So because Brandon and Bianca did have some mutual friends in the online community, people who knew Bianca did see this image. One of her friends, who was a female, said that when she saw it, she really couldn't tell if it was just good Photoshop or if it was real at first because no one expects to go online and see that. So upon looking further at it, she saw some distinct markings that she knew Bianca had and immediately knew it was very real and that Bianca was seriously hurt, but quite clear that she was dead. She quickly called the police, as did others online from around the country who were seeing this pop up. This was also a time that Instagram trolls began using this photo to get more followers. So people were screenshotting this content because it was left up on Instagram for so long, they had plenty of time to take it and repost it themselves. So they'd repost and then tag Bianca's account in it. When you went to Bianca's profile and went to the picture she was tagged in, it would be just a grid of this picture of her with her head nearly decapitated. And then once Instagram did say they were taking this photo down, accounts began using these photos to say, oh, I have access to it, so if you follow me, I'll send it to you. At the same time that some trolls were doing that, fans of Bianca were using the hashtag pink clouds for Bianca to post pictures of pink clouds to try and drown out the images that were circulating for that day online. While that photo of Bianca with her head nearly decapitated is arguably the most gruesome content that Clark shared online during the crimes, it's notable to also mention that he posted stories as well that said he was sorry to Bianca with a picture of the tarp that was covering her body, as well as a message on one of the online chat forums that said that men would have to find someone else to orbit. This in and of itself wasn't actually too alarming just because it could have meant that they were officially dating. There definitely was already confusion because of how often Brandon referred to Bianca as his girlfriend online. So that little anecdote could have just meant that they were now in a relationship, but it becomes a lot more sinister when you do find out what he means by that they can't orbit her anymore. Now things in this case take an even worse turn when you start to see some of the internet's reaction to Bianca's murder. A group of people called incels started applauding Brandon for what he did to Bianca. If you aren't familiar with what an incel is, incel stands for involuntarily celibate. The word was actually created by a woman who was blogging about her struggles dating, but has since been taken over largely by a male community online and has been used to create a really toxic environment. A lot of these men are online in these chat rooms like on 4chan and Reddit, And they discuss things about why it's very unfair that some people are getting love, specifically attractive men, and overall blaming women for all of their problems and all of their struggles, saying that there's nothing wrong with them and that women are just being cruel to them for no reason. 
The relationship between Brandon and Bianca is something that the incel community would find themselves relating to because it was Brandon who was searching for Bianca's affection and not getting it, even though he was perceived as a nice guy. Bianca was being harassed by incels online prior to her murder because she would take photos of herself that were very attractive and put them online, but then not give all of the men the attention that they wanted in exchange, making her the prime target of their anger. So when Brandon did go through with this murder, the incel community really latched onto it and applauded him for what he did. To them, this was a great showing of Bianca choosing her own fate, basically signing her own death wish because she didn't give Brandon a fair chance like he wanted, and she just looked past him and didn't appreciate him, and the incels were saying more or less that she knew what she was doing when she was toying with his emotions, so she had to pay the price for that. In my own research for this podcast, I found a post that I found really disturbing. It's not necessarily by someone who explicitly identifies themselves as an incel, but I'll read word for word what their take is on Bianca's role in her own death. Quote, Bianca was a sociopathic girl who sadistically manipulated and toyed with emotionally vulnerable men to her own amusement. I'm not condoning what her murderer did to her, but to say she didn't have it coming is simply being dishonest. She was literally taunting the dude. She was only 17, too dumb enough to stand that actions have consequences. You don't taunt killers and then act surprised when after you're done emotionally humiliating them that they react with violence. The more that I read, the more I found posts that seem to agree with this opinion. There are a lot of people on Reddit who are saying that Bianca was online sending naked photos to men and then forcing them to pay her in exchange for them even though they weren't asking for the photos in the first place. I feel weird even putting this in the podcast because there's no proof of this and it's really damaging to Bianca's character. But enough people said it that I feel like it's worth noting that that narrative is still going online to this day. Another rumor going around is that Bianca identified herself as asexual, so someone with no interest in sex. This would be really important to understand because not only would it mean that she had no sexual interest in Brandon, but it means she would have no sexual interest in anyone. If this is the case, then it brings into question if she actually did kiss Adam at the concert or if it was something else that infuriated Brandon or if there was nothing that really happened to infuriate Brandon and he simply was planning to do this no matter what. Something else that I noticed while researching this case is that a lot of people on Reddit were commenting about Bianca's parents and placing some of the blame on them. People were saying that Bianca's parents should have been more closely monitoring who she was talking to, how she was talking to people, the relationship she was forming, her plans, what she was up to, and maybe if they had been, that she wouldn't have been able to travel with Brandon or grow this friendship with Brandon. However, I think this was really interesting, and I guess this is one of the first questions I'll pose, is do you think this was because the age difference, so Bianca was technically under 18, so she was a minor, and Brandon was 21, so there would be less parental responsibility on him? Or do you think that some of this criticism comes from people buying into the fact that Bianca was scamming men online for money and them saying that the parents should have been watching for that, for her bad behavior, because then they could have prevented her getting into worse situations because of it. I think that just what I found most interesting when reading this opinion is that I didn't see any sort of responsibility in 
for anyone in Brandon's life to have been knowing what he was doing and keeping up with his behaviors. But I did see that listed um, in a lot of comments for people blaming Bianca's parents for not having a close enough watch on their daughter and thus having some responsibility in her murder. So I want to wrap this case up by talking about the trial. There have actually been some new developments in the last few months for Brandon's trial, which are very interesting to think about, as I think they'll cause a lot of controversy if they do go through. So we'll just start at the beginning with his initial plea. In February of 2020, so a bit over six months after the murder, Brandon did plead guilty. There were a lot of signs that this was a premeditated crime. So in the car, there was a can of spray paint that he then used to write his suicide note after killing Bianca. You could look at this and say that that was circumstantial, that he didn't have that there for that purpose, but then was looking for something to use and chose that. However, some of his internet history was a little more suspicious, and by a little, I mean a lot. So May to July, the two, one or two months before he went through with the murder, he was researching ways to kill people with a focus on the carotid artery, which is located in the neck and is also where Bianca was slashed. He also set up the camera on his dashboard before moving to the back seat to attack her. This is important because he had also previously researched on the internet how to live stream, so this is what makes people think that he was setting the camera up with the intention of live streaming and didn't know how to do it. Another suspicious thing with him setting up this dashboard camera is that he told police that he was recording so that he would be able to watch it back later. This also goes directly against him attempting suicide at the scene, so that makes you wonder how much of his suicide attempt was planned or not. Overall, I would say it is the internet searches that are probably the most damning for this being a premeditated crime. I do hesitate to say that because if someone looked at my internet searches, it would also probably look like I was planning to do something bad, but in this case, he did actually do what he was researching. And regardless of whether or not it was premeditated, there is video of him doing all of this, pictures of her body, him taking responsibility on the phone calls to his family and to police, so there's really no way to get around that he is guilty of this crime. Because Brandon pled guilty, they wouldn't have to go to trial. This was really important to Bianca's family. They spoke out after his plea saying that they were so relieved by this because had he gone to trial, everyone would have had to watch the full death video, meaning the dashboard camera footage that he took of when he confronted and murdered Bianca. This would have been extremely traumatizing to not only the family, but the jury and everyone involved. As of right now, only the police have seen it, and members who have seen it have said that it is one of the most disturbing things that they've seen. So after Brandon pled guilty, he was sentenced to 25 years to life. However, the most recent update is that in October of 2020, Brandon put in a request to appeal his guilty plea and change it to not guilty. This, um, I mean, he very clearly is guilty. It's filmed what he did, and he is aware of that, but the change from guilty to non not guilty gives him the opportunity to get a lighter sentence by claiming, you know, insanity or any other things that would help lessen his responsibility for his actions. When putting in this appeal, Brandon said that his lawyer did not make him aware of how much evidence was missing and blamed his lawyer overall for not providing enough knowledge to Brandon to make an accurate decision in what he should plea. The lawyer then took the stand and said that he told Brandon everything and that Brandon never complained to him about not being a good enough lawyer, so it was coming as news to him, this sudden switch to a different attorney and a new plea. 
Brandon's new focus, if the case is able to go to trial, would be to focus on the extreme emotional disturbance defense. So what this means is it's less than insanity, but basically says that your charges can be lowered from murder to manslaughter if there is a reasonable excuse for you to do what you did. So basically using this, you can assume that Brandon would argue that Bianca was emotionally manipulating him or fighting with him caused him extreme emotional distress, which led him to this crime of passion. But the judge actually brought up a record from February 2020 in a court appearance where Brandon clearly stated that he knew about that disturbance defense and that he was still going to plead guilty to spare Bianca's family the trauma of trial. As you could guess, the extreme emotional disturbance defense is highly, highly criticized. One article that I found called it an excuse for people who are mentally competent to act horrifically and get away with violence against others just because they can't control their emotions as well as others do. And this does seem to make a lot of sense. This defense alone seems like it would be able to cover a lot of different crimes of passion. You know, say um, a woman walked into her husband cheating on her and she snapped and she shot everybody in the room, but then she just said, oh, you know, that's not me, I'm not violent, but that was just the emotions got the best of me, you know, the shock factor. So I actually don't have to be charged with murder. It was just a mistake. It's just manslaughter. So it really opens the door for a lot of difficulty in making choices about who is fully emotionally competent instead of just mentally competent. And emotionally competent is a very different thing. Like, I really like what the article said about how it would allow people to get away with violence against violence against others just because they can't control their own emotions as well as others, and that is very much the case. A lot of people do go through really enraging things, really stressful things without acting out, so this defense, it just doesn't sit right with me. I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. And my last question is just if you think this was premeditated or if you think this was a crime of passion. Um, I think this distinction is really important in sentencing because of the juvenile aspect of this case. So, I mean, Brandon technically over 18, but lots of criminal justice reform pushing for people to be considered juveniles up until age 21 or even later because the brain doesn't stop developing until about age 25. And a lot of research on juveniles in brain development and crime and offending is that the impulse control aspect of the brain is not fully developed yet. So if we do want to go with that Brandon acted out of rage, out of emotion, and he did not plan to kill Bianca, then that is really important to make a distinction of because there is a developmental argument for that. If his lawyers did go into the courtroom and say that he physically, biologically, developmentally was not competent like an adult would be and didn't have full impulse control, they, I mean, I think that would be probably their best defense. I think it'd be better than the extreme emotional disturbance defense. But then again, I lean personally towards thinking this is premeditated based on some of the internet searches. Um, I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. Well, thank you for listening to my first podcast. I hope that you found this case interesting. Um, next time, I'm probably going to pick one with a little bit more pre-existing, solid, known information because this was definitely hard to read a ton of different accounts with really no proof of what happened. And also, Instagram did a good or didn't do a good job taking the photos down right away, but the internet has definitely kept stuff pretty quiet since then, so I couldn't find a lot of photos either to try and piece things together myself, but...
Either way, I hope you enjoyed my first attempt of doing a podcast, and I hope that you will listen to my next one. Okay, bye.